Just to let you know now what's happening next Sunday night and the Sunday night following. Next Sunday night, we're having our annual spring wing fling. So don't be a chicken. Come on out. Spread your wings. Come on out next Sunday night for the big spring wing fling. We're going to have all the chicken wings you can eat, and we're going to have a great time of uh, fun and fellowship out on the back lawn. There'll be live music. Uh, there'll be uh, games, probably roller coasters, uh, water slides. We'll probably have it all next week, so something like that. But be here next Sunday night for the wing fling. I think we start at 5.30 rather than 6.30 next Sunday night. And then the Sunday night after that is Mother's Day. And guess what? We couldn't find it in our heart to ask any of the moms to do nursery or teach Sunday school that night since it was Mother's Day. So we're just going to take the night off and hopefully spend time with your mom and uh, honor your mom that night. So that's the next two weeks. And then the week following, which I guess will be the 21st of May, we'll be back in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 13. Tonight we're in chapter 12, Joshua chapter 12. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, we'll be in chapter 12, but we'll start in chapter 9. How's that? Hey, the new pastor made a visit down to the children's ministry. He wanted to measure its effectiveness, and so he asked the Sunday school class, who tore down the walls of Jericho? Little Johnny, he raised his hand and he said, Pastor, I promise you, I didn't do it. Well, the pastor was sort of taken back, you know, what a strange answer. So he repeated the question, now come on class, who tore down the walls of Jericho? The Sunday school teacher, she jumped in and she said, Pastor, little Johnny's a good boy and if he says he didn't do it, I'm sure he didn't do it. Well, this really upset the pastor, so he went down to the head of the children's ministry and explained what had happened. And the director of the children's ministry, he said, well, you know, Pastor, we've had problems with little Johnny before, but since then, since we've talked to him, he's been just fine, and if he says he didn't do it, he probably didn't do it. Well, the pastor by this time is really irate, so he goes to the elders of the church to discuss the situation, and the leader of the elders, he, he responds, he says, Pastor, Johnny's family has been a part of our church for a long time now, so I make a motion, we take the money out of the general fund and just pay to repair the walls. Last week, we discovered who really did tear down the walls of Jericho, and he was right. It wasn't little Johnny. Jesus fought the battle of Jericho. Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, planned and executed the victory. In fact, there were two key battles in, Hebrew, in the Hebrews' conquest of Canaan. The first was the battle of Jericho. It was the Israelites' initial victory. And it sent a message to the other nations that, wow, this God of Israel was a God to be reckoned with. It created momentum among God's people. The second key battle, though, is what we'll discuss tonight, and that's the battle of Beth Horon. At Beth Horon, God broke the southern resistance, and he destroyed five nations that had allied themselves to fight against Joshua and the Hebrews. And it's interesting with both victories, both the victory at Beth Horon and the victory at Jericho, the Israelite army was aided 
by supernatural intervention. The miraculous way that the battles were won convinced the Canaanites that yes, they were doomed. It was obvious they were fighting no ordinary army. These victories were proof that they were fighting against the army of the one true and living God, Jehovah of Israel. And if you think the miracle at Jericho was a big deal, hold on to your hat, friend. For the battle of Beth Horon, God flexes his muscle in an extraordinary way. We begin in chapter 9. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan... In the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it. They gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Now these were usually hostile city-states that usually warred against each other. But Israel poses such a threat, these cities now rally together to fight against Joshua. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, and understand this was the next town west of Ai, the next town down the road, Gibeon. And they knew they were next in the line of fire. They were the next city to be toppled by this Israelite stampede. It was too late for Gibeon to join the forces with their neighbors. Their survival depended on a different approach They decided if you can't beat them, join them. And we're told they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the beard, the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. In other words, they looked like they'd been traveling for months. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Now, you see, the Gibeonites understood that God had instructed the Hebrews to take no prisoners from among the Canaanites, to sign no treaties with the inhabitants of the land. The Hebrews were under orders to seek and destroy. A good neighbor strategy wouldn't work with these Hebrews. Therefore, the Gibeonites pretended to be a delegation from a far, far country. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, not knowing they were Hivites, by the way, perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? They were suspicious. But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. And notice they didn't mention the most recent conquests of Jericho and of Ai. They didn't want to mention the most recent conflicts. This was all part of the ruse. You know, they were pretending as if they hadn't heard about those victories. They wanted to think they were ignorant of the local news. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, 
Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. Now, look, it is dry and moldy. They're just lying through their teeth. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these, our garments and our sandals, have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. Notice this. These are ominous words. Notice this. But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Oh, my. How often have we been guilty of the same mistake? How many of our problems can be traced back to not seeking counsel from the Lord? We were too confident. We were leaning too much on our own understanding. Oh, it seemed so good to us at the time. Beware, guys. Neglect to seek the Lord and you'll get burned. Remember, Isaiah 28 verse 16 is a good reminder. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Guys, never make a decision without first consulting God's wisdom. Well, verse 15, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beroth and Kiroth-Jerim. For the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. In other words, a vow is a vow, and the leaders were men of their word. And even though they had been deceived into making this vow, they still were committed to honoring their word. Reminds me of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 5. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Perhaps some of you work for a Gibeonite. Oh, the promises he made when he hired you. But it was a deception. Where's my money? Maybe you bought a car from a Gibeonite. <laughs> now you know you bought a lemon. The guy was guilty of false advertisement. Now you know. <laughs> oh, my. Maybe you married a Gibeonite. <laughs> she pretended to be something she was not. He sort of led you on and, and deceived you. Gave you a false bill of goods. Hey, how do you respond if you find out you've been dealing with a Gibeonite? Well, in certain situations, there may be some recourse that you can take, but there is one certainty, and that is that God expects you to keep your word. No matter the inconvenience it creates, you still need to be a person of integrity. If you made a promise... You should uphold your end of the deal. You should keep your promise. 
You should be a man or a woman of your word. Verse 18 tells us, And the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, Look, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let me live, but let me be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. The Gibeonites would cut wood for the sacrifices and they would carry water for the priestly washings. The Gibeonites became the lumberjacks and the water boys of the tabernacle. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, Why have you deceived us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. I guess you could say they were believers. For they, they had heard what God had said to the Israelites and they believed that God would win the victory and of course they would be doomed. So they had resorted to this kind of deception. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them and that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. It's interesting. Despite their deceptive methods, the Gibeonites gratefully embrace these duties that Joshua hands out to them. In fact, later, Joshua will appoint the city of Gibeon of all places to be a Levitical city. Isn't that interesting? A place where the Levites, the priests and all of the tabernacle, they will live in the city of Gibeon. It becomes a Levitical city. They'll make their home, the Levites will, among the woodcutters and the water boys. Perhaps the psalmist was thinking about the Gibeonites when he wrote Psalm 84 verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. In a sense, that's the decision that the Gibeonites made. Hey, we would rather be woodcutters and water carriers in the house of the Lord than to be center stage, up front, box seats in the tents of wickedness. It's interesting that God also honors this covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. Years later, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 tells us, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul in his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Isn't that interesting? God would later bring judgment on those who had mistreated the Gibeonites and had failed to honor the promise that Joshua had made to let them live among God's people. 
Now, Joshua's victories don't go unnoticed by the surrounding Canaanite kings. I'm sure that when Joshua lynched the king of Ai, you remember when he did that? I'm sure it got the attention of the neighboring kings. They didn't want to be next on the lynching tree. And this is why Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, along with four other kings, form a coalition to attack these Hebrews. They intend to stop Israel's conquest. This southern coalition is going to meet Israel at the Battle of Beth Horon. And if you think Jericho was an example of supernatural intervention, you ain't seen nothing yet. Chapter 10 begins with Adonai Zedek's analysis. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho in its king, so he had done to Ai in its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Rather than just sit back and let Joshua take them out one at a time, Adonai Zedek says to these other kings, Let's join forces and let's take the battle to Joshua. Let's hit him right there in the city of Gibeon. Verse 5, Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. Taking back Gibeon would prove that these southern kings were a formidable resistance. And it would also give them a military advantage over Joshua. Gibeon had a strategic geographical location. And all the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. And here is where a little geography lesson will help us. From Gilgal, which was right on the banks of the Jordan River, to Ai, it was just 15 miles. But keep in mind, it's all uphill. It's a steep climb. Gilgal is 900 feet below sea level, whereas Ai is up in the mountains 2,600 feet above sea level. Now, if you keep going westward from Ai, and I think we've got a map, We jumped ahead there just, just a bit. Do we have the map? Yeah. Now, if you keep going westward from Ai, you see Gibeon. 
And once you get to Gibeon and you go westward from Gibeon, you're going back down the slope toward the west side of the mountain. And the valley below Gibeon is called the Valley of Beth Horon. I wish I had a, I wish I had one of those little lasers. Anybody, anybody got one of those little lasers on you? No? Okay. Okay, you go. Everybody's with me? See where Gilgal is? Gilgal is underneath the arrow right there. You see where Jericho is? Right on the uh, banks of the Jordan River? You see where it is? See it? <laughs> you don't see where Gilgal is? You see Gilgal? Somebody please show Rico where Gilgal is. Rico, you know where Loganville is? Well, there's Gilgal right there. You see Gilgal? All right. Now, see, Gilgal is 900 feet below sea level. Ai is 2,600 feet above sea level. Just 15 miles separate them, but there's like a 3,500-foot climb. You with me? Now, when you go to Gibeon, you're still going uphill until you get to Gibeon. And then all of a sudden, when you go west of Gibeon, you're going back down into a valley... And that valley is the valley of Beth Horon. Now, when you come down the valley of Beth Horon, there's another valley that's perpendicular to the valley of Beth Horon, and that's the valley of Ajalon. You see Ajalon? See it way back over there? You don't see where, you know where Lawrenceville is? <laughs> Ajalon is back over here. probably don't know how to spell it. A-I-J-A-L-O-N. You see Ajalon? It's near Timna. You see it? Okay, so, so what ha thanks for helping, Rico. So what happens is the valley, the valley of Beth Horon starts at the head up in Gibeon, and it goes down. And so the only way out of the valley of Beth Horon is south and west toward the valley of Ajalon. So the only way out of Beth Horn is the valley of Ajalon down below it. And that's all going back downhill. Everybody with me? Okay, great. Now Joshua hears that this southern coalition of kings, that they're camped out in the valley of Beth Horn, about to attack Gibeon. And so he pushes his troops through the night. This is a night march. The Israelite army marches hard. Probably took them 10 hours to hike that 15 miles, that 3,300-foot climb. But when the sun comes up, Joshua is in position to launch a surprise attack against Adonai Zedek and his Amorite buddies. When the sun rises, the fight commences, verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon through the valley southward and struck them down as far as Azekah and Machedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died from the hellstones 
than the children of Israel killed with the sword. God gets involved in this battle. God sends a supernatural airstrike. And a shower of hailstones rains down on this army. Now in the Old Testament, what was the penalty for blasphemy? Stoning. These Canaanites had blasphemed against God by their idolatry and their paganness and their occult practices. What's happening here? God is stoning the blasphemers from heaven, raining down hailstones upon them. God uses the heavy artillery. He bombs these Amorites with large hailstones. The route is on. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel... In other words, he prayed this prayer where it could be heard. He's not ashamed about what he's going to pray. He says, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. Verse 13. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Now understand what's happening. The ancient Hebrews didn't have daylight savings time. They couldn't just roll their clocks. And the sun has started to set. The route is on and nobody wants to have to finish this thing tomorrow. Besides, Joshua is concerned that the Amorites will get away under the cover of darkness. And so to complete the mop up, he needs a few more hours of daylight. And thus Joshua prays a prayer so bold, so daring, that I doubt any of us would have even dreamed to pray it. He prays in verse 12, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And we're told in verse 13, So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Now let this miracle prove once and for all that there is no limit to the extent God will go to help his people defeat their enemies. Don't come quibbling to me and say, well, I just can't give it up, man. Well, I just worry too much. I'm just afraid of him. I'm sorry. I just can't break these chains. I can't give it up. I can't say no. Don't tell me that. There is no extent to which God won't go to help you overcome your enemies, even if he has to stop the sun still for 24 hours. God wants you to live in victory over your fear, in victory over sin, in victory over temptation, in victory over worry. If you ask the Lord, if you trust in him, he'll do whatever it takes to give you the opportunity and the tools you need for victory. And don't get thrown by the language here. The writer is simply using what I call the language of observation. He's reporting on a phenomenon as it appears. You know, we do this all the time when we use expressions like sunrise or suns. How many of you talk about the sunrise or the sunset? We use those terms. Well, when we do, we don't actually say, when we say the sun rise, we're not actually saying that the sun is rising and the sun is setting. We know that the earth's rotation makes it appear that way. We're just using the language of observation. 
evidently, something happened here that caused the earth's rotation to slow down and even stop for a 24-hour period. And obviously, this presupposes a global event of cataclysmic proportions. And notice Joshua even suspects future readers might have a difficult time believing such a miracle even occurred, and thus he appeals to some additional extra-biblical sources to support what had happened. He says, is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Indeed, it was a unique situation in the history of the world. God heeded Joshua's prayer to help him win this battle. And then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. That this miracle happened should not be questioned. The only question is how it happened. Not only did the book of Jasher mention this event, in almost every culture on the planet, there are historical references to either a long day or a long night. The Chinese speak of the long day. The Aztecs of Mexico, the Choctaw Indians, and the Peruvian Indians all have stories in their you know, culture of a long night. The fact that there was a long day and a long night is a fact of history. Now, how it happened is much more of a mystery. Certainly God could have reached out his hand and slowed the earth's rotation. That's certainly possible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. And if he created the heavens and the earth, then he can do anything with them that he chooses. Could he have just reached down and stopped the earth for a second or so? Yes, he could have. Or for 24 hours or so? Yes, he could have done that. There are, though, some respected scientists who have posed astronomical explanations for Joshua's long day. A colleague of Albert Einstein, a man named Emanuel Velikovsky, wrote a book called Worlds in Collision. It's a fascinating book. And in his book, Velikovsky suggests that a comet passed through the Earth's atmosphere right in the middle of Joshua's battle. The comet tilted the Earth's axis, accounting for the long day. Its tail also pummeled through the Earth with a shower of asteroids or hailstones as they hit the Earth. And so in essence, it was a miracle of timing that God manipulated the comet in answer to Joshua's prayer. It's a possibility. There is another book by a former NASA scientist, a man by the name of Donald Wesley Patton, and you can pick up his book. It, too, is a fascinating read. It's called Catastrophism and the Old Testament. And in this book, Patton suggests that the Earth was a victim of a close encounter with the planet Mars. Now, Patton has constructed computer models that show that around the time of Joshua, Mars passed by the Earth at a distance of 28,000 miles. 
That sounds like a, a long ways, but it's really not. The closest the moon ever gets to the earth is 221,463 miles. So 28,000 miles is just spitting distance. A close flyby with another planet would cause magnetic and gravitational fields of both planets to drag on each other. The Earth's rotation might grind to a halt and all kinds of global disasters would result like hailstones near Beth Horan. Patton's theory may also explain why the ancients worshipped planets that they could barely see. This is a fascinating point in history. Did you know that the city of Rome was dedicated to Mars, the god of war? Did you know that Jonathan Swift in Gulliver's Travels, he actually mentions, it was written old 17, middle 1700s, I think it was. In his, uh, in his book, he actually mentions the moons of Mars. The modern astronomers didn't discover the moons of Mars until at least 150 years later. Why did he know about the moons of Mars? How did we know so much about Mars? How did we know so much about this planet? It's possible that this close flyby may have actually occurred. Now, these explanations are also interesting in light of the book of Revelation. If a planetary flyby or if the sweep of a comet through the Earth's atmosphere did occur in the past, it could also occur in the future and possibly explain some of the cataclysmic events that will occur in the last days. Revelation describes massive earthquakes, the sky tearing in two, meteorites falling from the sky, the surface of the Earth being scorched, mountains being moved out of their places, Islands disappearing, and on and on it goes. Cataclysmic events. It could be that they will happen in the future in the same way that they may have happened in the past. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah that compares God's judgment in the last days with the miraculous events that occurred in Beth Horon. Isaiah calls it the Valley of Gibeon as we read it. Isaiah 28 verse 21 and 22 reads... For the Lord will rise up at, as at Mount Parism. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now therefore do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. There, Isaiah predicts that God will do in the future as he has done in the past in the valley of Gibeon or the valley of Ben-Horon. Which brings up another provocative observation. As we talked about a little bit last week, in so many ways, the book of Joshua is actually a small-scale model of the book of Revelation. Remember the theme of both books, a Jesus or a Joshua wages war against a collection of pagan kings in order to take possession of a land that belongs to God and his people. Now, in Joshua, that land was Canaan. 
But in the book of Revelation, that land is the planet Earth. And look at the parallels. Two spies enter into Jericho. Two witnesses are sent by God to testify to the earth. Seven trumpets shake the walls of Jericho. Seven trumpet judgments will shake the earth in Revelation. Both campaigns last seven years. The Great Tribulation will last seven years. Joshua's conquest of Canaan lasted seven years. Both opposition forces are led by a king from Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, which means Lord of Righteousness. Here he typifies the Antichrist, the imposter of righteousness. In both books, God uses cataclysmic judgments to humble the enemy. Hailstones fall in Beth Horon, while we're told in Revelation, 100-pound hailstones fall on the blasphemers. Revelation 16, verse 21. God will stone the world for its blasphemy again. Here's another point. In Revelation 6, verse 15, the kings of the earth hide themselves in the rocks and in the caves to try to escape God's judgment. In Judges 10, verse 16, the five kings that came against Joshua hide themselves in the cave of Machedah. And the list of parallels goes on and on. It's really amazing. You'll also notice what Joshua does to the Amorite kings in chapter 10, verse 24. If you look at that verse, it says that the captains of Israel were told to put your feet on the necks of these kings. And isn't this what Jesus will one day do to his enemies? He'll make his enemies his footstool. He'll put his feet on their necks. Some interesting stuff here. Well, verse 16. <clears throat> but these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Machedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Machedah. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedah in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Verse 22, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, of Hebron, of Jarmuth, of Lachish, and of Eglon. And so it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them, and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them from the trees and cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones 
against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. <clears throat> Verse 28, On that day Joshua took Machedah and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Machedah as he had done to the king of Jericho. Once the Amorite coalition falls, the rest of these southern kingdoms become easy pickings. The rest of chapter 10 sums up the conquest. Machedah falls, then Libna, then Lachish, then Eglon, then Hebron, then Debir. And Joshua sort of does to these southern city-states of Canaan what Sherman did to the south during the Civil War. He goes through these towns. He leaves behind a trail of blood in the south of Canaan is cleared for Israelite occupation. Now verse 40 sums up the conquest. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. <clears throat> Southern Canaan has fallen, but now Joshua sets his sights northward. Chapter 11. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madan, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Oxaph, to the kings who were from the north in the mountains in the plain south of Chinneroth. And the word Chinneroth means harp-shaped. And it was another name for the Sea of Galilee. And for those of you who went with us to Israel... You know what we're talking about when you say that the lake was heart-shaped. You remember when we stood up on top of the Arbel and we looked out over the lake? You know, it does resemble a harp. It has that kind of a, a harp shape. It's interesting. He says, In the lowland and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. <clears throat> now, we've got a map of the northern part of this. Do we, Lissa? We don't have the map for the northern part? Steve, you don't have the map for the same map? Can you roll it a little northward? Where's the same? Can you go back to that map? Great. Great. Everybody see now where the, where the army goes? We've, we've conquered the southern kingdoms, and now they're moving north. Keep in mind that little city, Hazor. Very important. Okay. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Now the waters of Miram were a few miles east of Hazor. And the armies of this northern coalition now are all under the command of Jabin, king of Hazor. And this is a formidable army. Don't underestimate it. The Jewish historian Josephus says that Jabin gathered 
300,000 infantry, 20,000 cavalry, and 10,000 chariots. And Josephus said that each of his chariot crews consisted of three soldiers, a driver, a bowman, and a javelin chunker. Jabin's army was the equivalent of a modern war machine, and Joshua was just a little intimidated. That's why in verse 6, But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. The next day, Joshua leads a surprise attack against this northern army. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Mizraphoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Deuteronomy 17 had warned the future king of Israel not to store up horses for himself. You see, in ancient times, the cavalry was the state of the art warfare. Horses translated into military might. But the king of Israel was supposed to trust in God, not his chariots and his cavalry. I'm sure the hamstrung horses and the burning of the chariots help reinforce this idea in the minds of the Hebrews that they should trust in God, not in their chariots, lest they be tempted to fall back on human weapons and human efforts. Verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time and he took Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, There was none left breathing, then he burned Hazor with fire. Remember, God used Israel to judge these people because of the perversity of their culture and the lewdness and perversity that they were perpetrating. So all the cities of these kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazar only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. Notice this. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And here is the real secret of Joshua's success. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded. He was obedient in every detail. Joshua left nothing undone of what God had asked him to do. And guys, this is the difference between spiritual victory and defeat. If you want to overcome sin, if you want to overcome that temptation and that pull in your life, here is the big 
point. Here's the key to real spiritual victory. Is there anything that you've left undone? Is there any little thing that you're holding on to? Or is there any little thing that you've yet to deal with? Is there anything that you've left undone? May it be said of us what it was said of Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded. It is a credit to Joshua that modern Israeli generals have studied his battle tactics and have used them to defeat the Syrians and the Jordanians in recent conflicts. Joshua was the originator of the preemptive strike. Like my daddy used to say, if you ever get picked on by the bully, make sure you hit him first before he has a chance to hit you. Well, that's exactly the strategy that Joshua took. He had the preemptive strike. Rarely did he wait on his enemy to attack him. He struck first. That's what happened at Ai when they won. That's what happened at Beth Horon. That's what happened at Hazor. Even if it meant marching his army all through the night, Joshua used the element of surprise. He also knew the lay of the land, and he used it to his advantage. In almost every battle, Joshua was outnumbered by his enemy, but he relied on speed and stealth and surprise. Today, modern Israelis hail Joshua as the ultimate military commander. But remember, who fought the battles? Who? The commander of the Lord's host, which is our Lord, Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus led the Hebrews to victory just as he leads us to victory when we trust him. Verse 16. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak to the ascent of Seir, even as far as Baal God in the Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. In other words, from south to north, he took the land. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except who? The Gibeonites. Yeah, the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains. Now, the Anakim were the giants. Remember when the spies went out into the land, they came back and they said, oh, there are giants in that land. Those were the Anakim. These were the people that may have been the offspring of the demons and the, the human women the offspring of dark, occultic sexual practices. Joshua targeted these giants, these Anakim, for extermination. He says he cut them off from Hebron, from Debir, from Anup, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod which will later become Philistine country. And later we will meet one of the surviving family members of the Anakim, 
a giant who lived in the town of Gath, he and his four brothers. And you remember that giant's name? Goliath of Gath. Nine foot, nine inches. Made Shaquille O'Neal look like a midget. Verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. And chapter 12 sums up Israel's victories. Two kings defeated by Moses east of the Jordan. 31 kings in all conquered by Joshua west of the Jordan River. And I love Alan Redpath's comment on this chapter. He says, sometimes in the course of human experience, it is good to sit down and reflect on what has been conquered by the grace of God. Good practice for us to sit down and rehearse in our minds the victories that God has won in our lives as well. I'm sure for Joshua, this chapter stirred up great gratitude and wondrous praise. Now these are the kings of the land whom the Lord whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun or eastward from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. Verses 2 through 6 lists the Amorite, Zihon, and Og of Bashan, the two kings conquered by Moses east of the Jordan. It also pinpoints the boundaries of their territory. And then verses 7 through 24 of the chapter lists the 31 kings conquered by Joshua west of the Jordan. Now that the land has been conquered, it has to be distributed. It has to be allocated among the 12 tribes. And then, of course, settled by the people. And that's what we'll get into next time. And so there's Joshua chapters 9 through 12. Did you get it? Understand it all? Great. The next time we'll look at Joshua chapter 13. And we're going to try next time to go all the way probably to chapter 19. 13 to 19 next time. So read those chapters ahead of time. All right? And then next week... If you've got a Bible atlas or if you've got a good Bible that has the maps in the back, and, and hey, you got a few weeks. It's going to be a couple weeks before we get back into it. So you got a few weeks to, to get you an atlas if you don't have one. Next time, bring an atlas with you because it will kind of help you as we go through where the different tribes